next question, in fact, the last question in this series. Why do Christians celebrate holidays with pagan origins like Easter and Christmas? And why do Christians celebrate birthdays when we don't see Jesus doing the same thing? As a lot of you know, we are a church organized uh, based on our identity in Christ. So because our Father in Heaven has adopted us as sons and daughters who are dearly loved all the time because our standing with our Father in Heaven is rooted in who Christ is and not our performance but His performance. And because we have been served by King Jesus who gave and came and served and gave His life as a ransom for many, we are now servants of King Jesus. And so when we serve others, we're actually serving King Jesus and we serve King Jesus by serving others. And we are also, as the Father and Son sent the Spirit into the world with the gospel, so we are sent with the power of the Spirit, with the message of the gospel, to see more and more people come alive in Christ Jesus. And so this identity as um, uh, a son and daughter of our Father in heaven, as a servant of King Jesus, as a missionary sent in the Holy Spirit, uh, we are organized as missional communities uh, to be a church on mission in everyday life. And so we don't uh, we're not organized as, you might say, the quote-unquote traditional church. You know, we don't have all the ministries and programs of the traditional church in the Bible Belt culture. And, you know, why is that? Well, and some of you know this in case you don't or in case you've forgotten. Uh, we, are, we're, we are organized like that to free us up. To free us up for what? More, more Netflix? More fun? More work? More money? No, it's to free us up to send us out to be in relationships with people making disciples who make disciples. So we're not having to spend all of our time doing churchy religious things. Nothing wrong with churches that do that, not hating on that. But it's not how we feel like we want to see God, disciples of Jesus Christ made in our culture. We, we know that, and studies are out there that prove all this, we know that disciples aren't being made in the way church has been done. Not enough. And so is there a better way? And we're pursuing that together. And so we want to be freed up to build relationships with people who are, who are lost, who are maybe religiously immature, who are uh, far from God, who are unchurched or not part of a healthy gospel community, however you want to describe that. We want to build relationships with them to the extent that we would call them friend, even if they're not a believer. Like People aren't projects, right? We want to be in their life. We want them to be in our life. It could be family members people we live around, people we work with, people we go to school with, could be people we meet as we are intentional and strategic in how we shop, work, eat, and play, people we share interests with. You might be in a, 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 a club of some kind that you all have the same hobby, and so you're being intentional about that to, to invite these people into your life to, to have deeper conversations than most people in our culture have, to get to the deepest things of life with the hope to share the gospel. And when they don't respond the way we want to respond, we don't just say, well, I'm done with you. No, we continue in life with them. So we have more opportunities to, to have these deep conversations to share the gospel. And for them, because we've invited them in so much into our life, for them to see the reality of the gospel lived out in our life. So that discipleship is happening. Even if they're not a believer. Believers in your, non-believers in your life, they're seeing how you're living out the reality of the gospel in your marriage and in your parenting. They come alive in Christ, and you've done all this discipleship work in them already for them to know how to live this out in their marriage and parenting. 
So the purpose of this series isn't just to answer some questions of curiosity or to give you more ammo to go out and assault people on social media. The purpose of this series was to emphasize this reality that we are in relationships with these people to the extent we call them friends and we're talking about deep things in life, questions that we've answered, 10,000 more questions we, we can't get to. And there's a way to have those conversations with grace and truth that, is, that, that allows us to maintain that relationship. Now certainly, you can get to a point in a relationship with someone who's far from God and, and, and there's just so much animosity, they, there's so much hatred toward God and His ways. We see that throughout Scripture that they just don't even want a relationship with you anymore. You're there, you're available, you love them, but they're just, I'm done with you. I can't handle your Christianness. And so that happens. But if it's up to us, we're, we're maintaining that friendship. We're maintaining that relationship. And so this is to emphasize that. This series to emphasize that, to equip you in having those conversations. So we're not like taking a position of arrogance. We have all the answers. Just come to us. No, we're, we're leaning in. We're humble. We're listening to you, even if we don't disagree, so that we can learn together. Because we're all humble learners. We're all remaining teachable. So, for instance, for instance, in a Bible Belt city like Modern Western Road would be very common conversation to have over the next two weeks. Uh, so what are you doing Easter Sunday? Most of the people in our context have some association of church with Easter Sunday. Even if they haven't attended 20 years, probably when they were a kid, they were dragged to church and dressed up and taken to an Easter egg hunt and taken to grandma's to eat some ham or roast or if they're a really, really lucky bunny um, and to celebrate this thing called Easter. And, and so it would be a normal thing for you to say, what are you doing Easter Sunday? Are you going to church? Are you attending a church service? Now, I know we know that church doesn't mean a service, and church doesn't mean an event at a place or a building. We know that. Most of our culture doesn't know that. They don't think like that. So we meet them where they're at, and we ask them a question that makes sense to them. Well, man, I'd love for you to, if you're not going anywhere, come with me to, to where I go to church where I'm having Easter church service. We're a church that does things a little different. And I'd love for you to come experience that. And, and then you invite them into this very normal rhythm of your life, Easter Sunday and the, the crossing in the palace. That would be a, not a weird conversation. Now, you go to Portland, where I was a few weeks ago, visiting a church plan our association supports, and you ask people in that culture that question, that's a weird question. Church? Who does that anymore? In our context, most people won't respond like that. Or if they do, if they're to that point in life, they're going to be like, dude, I'm, I'm so done with the church. Okay, then let's talk about that. Let's talk about why. Let's talk about how I'm done probably with the same part of the church that you're done with. So we share that in common. And let's see if there's a better way to do this together. Some in our area who claim to be Christian, or maybe even some who don't, might resist that question because they might say something like, well, I don't celebrate Easter because it's just a pagan worship service the church has tried to co-op. And so I'm not involved with that. Or it could be true of Christmas. More common, you'll find Christians who don't recognize Halloween in any way because of its pagan origins. Or, or less common, you'll find people who don't celebrate birthdays because of the same thing. So, so this question today is, how do we navigate all of that? How do we navigate that? As we, the church, are sent on mission to Monroe, how do we navigate these kinds of issues? Like if you're asking yourself... What is the strategy of the Crossing Church to reach Monroe and West Monroe? 
We don't, we don't have men's ministry, women's ministry, children's ministry, youth ministry like the typical church. What is the strategy? I would invite you to look around the room. Here's the strategy. The body of Christ with the message of the gospel doing this together. On our own, we will quit. We will give up. We will get frustrated. Together, we will be encouraged by the body of Christ and the Spirit of God to continue on this mission, even when it appears like we're not being successful. The mission hasn't changed. We keep pressing it forward until we find fertile soil for the gospel. Most of our life, most of our mission happens right here, Monroe Western Road. Sometimes we go to other places, like Jeff is going to uh, Mongolia on April 19th. So we need to be praying for Jeff because he's going to go spread the gospel intentionality in Mongolia for a week or two. Most of, most of our life is here. Sometimes God sends us to other contexts. But we're all together, life on life, life in community, life on mission, sharing the gospel of Christ in everyday life, answering questions like paganism in our holidays. It's a lot to do today, so let's ask for the Spirit's help before we jump into the question. Father, we do ask you to, to help us to see this morning the reality of your truth, the reality of your grace, the reality of your gospel through a question like this. And we pray that the Spirit would bring life and bring conviction and bring hope and bring joy where it needs to happen in our hearts. And that we would leave, be sent back out to the life you've given us with intentionality and passion for the people that you've put in our life to pursue. We pray you would do all of this work for the glory of Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, quickly I want to point out the reality that for Christmas and Easter, two of our holiest major holidays, there are aspects of those celebrations that have origins in pagan worship or the worship of other gods other than the most uh, one true most high God. That's more obvious with Halloween. It's less obvious with birthdays, but true there as well. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because, frankly, it's not controversial. Like you, you won't find many people who don't agree with this. So just want to hit some of the highlights of each one and then, and then look at how we respond to that. Christians would say that Christmas is all about celebrating the incarnational birth of Jesus the Messiah, that moment where the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and conceived a child in her womb, her virgin womb, and that child developed naturally through nine months of gestation and was born and came into the world, the most unique person who's ever walked the face of the earth, truly God, truly man, unique of all babies ever born. Most agree this became common to celebrate around December 25th, in the 300s A.D., when Constantine was the first Roman emperor who was a Christian, the early church, since the 100s, had been celebrating the baptism of Jesus on January 6th. They later added to this celebration the appearance of Jesus, but around the time of Constantine, the church began to have a Christ Mass, regular celebration of the birth of Jesus, which became Christmas. Now, lots of debate about why December 25th, some suggest the church at the time honestly thought they had the most accurate time, although nowadays most everyone disagrees with that. It was in the spring. Uh, some think Constantine was trying to unite the mostly pagan Roman Empire under Christianity by taking the worship of the sun god uh, around the time of the winter solstice and combining it with the worship of the son of God. And so all of the Roman Empire would be uh, worshiping the same god. Whatever the case, this is all speculation. No one knows for sure. There was some overlap with the worship of a pagan god and the origins of what we understand as Christmas. Now, not to mention, some view various aspects of the holiday as also having too much association with paganism. Trees with lights, giving gifts, 
feasting were all common parts of pagan worship, and we've adopted that into Christmas with our own uh, intentional meaning of how it relates to Christ, the evergreen tree, life that never ends, the lights, the light of the world, giving gifts, God gave us the gift of His Son, etc. Uh, but the origins were in more pagan festivals, and so that makes people uncomfortable, and so they, they rather abstain from that. Easter is the easiest to date for us. The Sunday, first day of the week during the Passover celebration in the spring, more specifically, the first, full sun, the first Sunday after the first full moon following the vernal equinox, the first day of spring. Now, Easter's date fluctuates so much because it's based on the solar calendar and the lunar calendar, which don't match up. So the first day of spring, vernal equinox, is the first day where we have 12 hours of dark, 12 hours of light. The first full moon after that, the first Sunday after that, is when we have Easter. So Easter can be anywhere from March 22nd to April 25th. The problem isn't the dating, though. The problem is that Easter comes from, the the word Easter comes from the pagan god Ishtar, or Astarte, or Istre. Ishtar, one of Hollywood's biggest flops is a movie in the 80s. But it's also the goddess of fertility and war from the ancient Mesopotamian culture, modern-day Iraq, which was the precursor to the Babylonian culture. Astarte is the Greek name of the same goddess. Istre is the German version. All are claimed as the origins for the word Easter, a pagan god. The bunny, the eggs, in conjunction with spring are all problematic for some Christians who feel like those pagan roots of Easter can't be separated from the worship of resurrected Jesus. Now, Halloween is more obvious as a pagan festival. The ancient Celtic festival of Samhain, When fall is here, the long summer has ended, the dark of winter is coming, so fires will be built to recognize that among the Celtic people. Some debate about it being a Day of the Dead celebration, but in the 300s A.D., the church began to to remember and celebrate the lives of Christian martyrs as a replacement for the worship of Roman mythological figures. Eventually, the church uh, uh, became a celebration of saints on November the 1st, And the night before All Saints Day would be All Hallows' Eve was a night to remember the dead. And as the church believed at the time, and some still do to this day, those in purgatory, by praying for them, lighting candles and lighting flowers, and praying for those who were dead and in purgatory until the fires went out. Now this fixation on the dead or association with the dead added this heightened awareness of spirits and ghosts and spooky beings because the church at the time believed that The dead people that they uh, went on before them could be embodied in those ghosts. Eventually, the Protestant Reformation denounced all theology related to purgatory, and the festive time that remained was adopted, and other connotations related to pranks and tricks and games and rituals were added. Of course, we commercialized it in America, and we've turned it into the second biggest party uh, behind Christmas every year. Birthdays. No record of Jesus celebrating birthdays, even his own. Of course, he never celebrated Christmas, Easter, or Halloween either. The origin of birthdays goes back to the Egyptians, where they would celebrate the day that a pharaoh was coronated as a god. That's actually one of the few mentions of a birthday in the Bible in Genesis 40. The Greeks added to the birthday of their gods by offering a cake lit with candles to create this glowing magical effect. It's believed the Romans were the first to celebrate birthdays of common men who were non-gods, culminating when on your 50th birthday, you would get a cake made of wheat flour, olive oil, honey, and grated cheese. So write that one down, guys who aren't 50 yet. Christians in the early years of the church avoided birthday celebrations because of the association with the worship of pagan gods, but eventually changed their mind when they began to celebrate the birthday of Jesus at Christmas. 
Eventually, the Germans added the birthday cake. The Industrial Revolution brought us Betty Crocker and Duncan Hines. Cake mixes, two school teachers in Kentucky in 1893, gave us the birthday song. Interestingly, the most common day to be born is October 5th, because nine months prior is New Year's Eve. The least common day is May 22nd, because nine months prior is August, and it's too stinking hot to think about conceiving a child in <laughs> August. All right, so what do we do with all that? Clearly and without dispute, the origins of these, three, these days have some overlap with pagan gods and celebrations. Three thoughts I have for your consideration for how to navigate this issue yourself, for you and your family, but also to help others that you talk about this in, in our culture with uh, as well. First, let's consider uh, what or if the Bible says anything about this. Uh, the Bible addresses Christian practices overlapping with pagan practices, but when it does, it addresses it as a matter of freedom and conscience. Some say, on the other hand, because Jesus never celebrated any of these holidays or his own birthday, in fact, and asked us to remember his death in the Lord's Supper and not his birth, therefore we shouldn't celebrate birthdays or these holidays with questionable origins. This is what we call the argument from silence. Jesus didn't do it. The Bible doesn't show any follower of God celebrating a birthday. Therefore, our conclusion is we don't do it. Now, an argument from silence doesn't work in logic and certainly shouldn't work in biblical interpretation. It doesn't mean we shouldn't take that into consideration. The Bible never tells us to do this. But ultimately, when you're making an interpretation that has significant uh, doctrinal impact, you've got to have more than argument from silence, especially if your position is like the Jehovah's Witness, who say that celebrating birthdays is a sin. That, if you're going to go that far, you've got to have more than just an argument from silence. And that's most of their argument. Another guy makes the case that celebrating birthdays is sinful because the three occasions in the Bibles when birthdays were celebrated, bad things happened. So when Pharaoh was coronated as king in Genesis 40, the baker was killed. Job's uh, children, according to his interpretation, celebrated their birthdays often. And it was this guy's belief that it was on one of those birthday celebrations that Satan came and killed all of Job's children Plus, Job cursed the day of his birth in Job 3. Therefore, we shouldn't celebrate birthdays. And when Herod was celebrating his birthday, John the Baptist was beheaded. So people celebrate birthdays in the Bible. Bad things happened. Don't celebrate birthdays. That's kind of the uh, don't swim in the ocean. You might get swallowed by a fish uh, level of Bible interpretation. The problem is when you're right reading... Uh, uh, historical events recorded by the writers of Scripture, you have to ask the question, is the writer simply describing what happened or prescribing what he thinks God wants to happen? In the case that God is prescribing us not to celebrate birthdays based on that biblical evidence is weak. So are there biblical, uh, biblical passages that help us navigate, that describe a situation where Christians were having to make decisions about what to do based on the activities associated with pagan practices. Anyone know? First Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. I know you would tell me if you felt like you had real freedom to speak here because you remember last year's series so well, but you're just nervous because you don't want to be on the spot. First Corinthians 8 through 10, you have an issue within that church concerning eating meat that had been offered to idols. Now, as we walk through that last year, as you remember, I probably don't need to say this, but I will, uh, Paul had no problem with this because he knew those idols weren't real gods. It's just meat. Eat meat, right? 
But there were some believers in the Corinthian church that had problems with it because of their former association with pagan lifestyle. To eat that meat would be to participate in this pagan worship, and they just they had an issue with it. So Paul, in those three chapters, walks through this long argument about how we deal with that in the church. Paul's advice um, was to develop some guidelines to help those believers navigate this issue that would have been helpful. Uh, we walked through some specific questions we could ask when trying to make decisions about issues in gray areas like that, and, and we gave these uh, last year. Number one, will God alone be worshipped by my actions? Are people in my life going to be helped or hurt? Is God going to be glorified through this action? Is this flowing from the reality of Christ in me, or is this just me doing what I want to do? Is the gospel going to be advanced or hindered? And those three chapters kind of build a case for asking those kinds of questions when you're trying to figure out if something is right or wrong when the Bible doesn't clearly tell us if it's right or wrong. For them, it was eating meat that had been offered to pagan gods. So there were some, Paul would say, who have the freedom, and they're not going to cause a weaker brother to stumble. Go ahead and eat the meat. You're going to build relationships with pagan families and people in the Greek culture in the city of Corinth in the first century in order to share with them the gospel of Christ. But Paul would say if it's a violation of your conscience, then don't. And, and everything to be done, whether the weaker brother, the, the non-weaker brother, the stronger brother, everything should be done and, and motivated by love and concerned with the mission. Now these questions can be asked about any gray area activity and help a believer examine where their conscience is and where their motivations are. Are you acting out of faith or are you acting out of a desire to enjoy and cherish God? Or are you motivated by something just sinful or selfish? You're just doing what you want to do. You don't really care about other people. And there could be Christians who genuinely feel like to celebrate these holidays or birthdays isn't good for them. And as a matter of freedom and conscience, we would say we, we love you. We support your decision. We're not imposing our will on you. You have to conform to our position, even if we don't agree. And for believers who don't want to celebrate these holidays, then they should be okay with believers who do. And for the same reason, it's a matter of faith, uh, freedom, and conscience. What Paul doesn't do in those chapters or anywhere in other places like Romans 14 is he doesn't make a hard and fast rule that's always okay or this is always sinful. It's a gray area. It's a matter of conscience and faith. You're not looking for a rule to follow here as much as guidelines and wisdom and the context of relationships to help you make your decision. And whatever your conviction is, whatever you decide, Whatever my brother or sister in Christ decides, even if it's the opposite of what I would decide, I will choose to give them that, free, that freedom and not impose my rules on them. So just imagine how different a conversation might go with someone who objects to these holidays because of the pagan origins. You know, you ask them about Christmas or Easter, what are you going to do? Well, we don't celebrate Christmas or Easter because of the um, pagan origins of the holidays. You know, we just not comfortable with that. Oh, man, look, I know there's been Christians that's been debated throughout the history of the church. Christians haven't always agreed on that. I totally respect your position. I appreciate you being thoughtful and considerate of that. So, so what are you doing to celebrate Christ around this time of the year? Just a good follow-up question. What are you doing? And if they began to heap shame and condemnation on you because you don't agree with them, then you can choose to engage in that conversation with grace and truth and maybe, maybe even have to walk away because it's become this issue of division. Because as far as it is possible, live at peace with all men. But it's not always possible to live at peace with all men. Biblically, though, this is 
uh, a gray area issue, a matter of conscience and freedom. I, I know even saying that, there are going to be people, you go online and find them, who this is not gray, this is black or white. This is God's wrath coming down on you if you choose to celebrate these holidays like that. The second thought for your consideration, number two, examine what you're actually celebrating when you make this decision. What are you celebrating at Christmas and Easter and Halloween and birthdays? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, the Westminster Confession says, or as John Piper has said, for 40 years, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So the idea of a Christian hedonist, that God has made us for joy and our greatest joy is in Him, and so if we are in Him, we should be happy, celebratory, joyful people that are so exuberant in our joy and celebration because of Jesus that has obvious implications for how we engage in holidays and birthdays. Now, certainly for those who abstain from these celebrations because of the pagan roots or as a matter of their conviction of conscience, it would be good to ask them, okay, then how are you celebrating Jesus? How do you throw parties? How do you celebrate His life and His work? How do you celebrate His incarnate ministry culminating with His death on the cross? How do you celebrate His resurrection on the Lord's Day? Like, hopefully you're not celebrating your legalistic rule following or celebrating how you're much more serious of a Christian than other Christians who celebrate all these holidays. So that would be a, a good follow-up conversation to have if someone's trying to impose their convictions on you. But for those of us who do celebrate holidays and birthdays, is it possible that we aren't celebrating Jesus? Is it possible that we've corrupted those days to be a day of indulgence and gluttony and laziness? Bowing to the gods of commercialism, materialism, capitalism, and individualism? That on birthdays we're not thanking God for the gift of this person, but we're elevating this person to the status that is reserved for Jesus alone? Like, all of us have to be careful and cautious and critical of our own motivations. Who are we celebrating at Christmas? Who are we celebrating at Easter? Who are we celebrating at Halloween and birthdays? We could just uncritically mimic the world and look no different than anyone else. I can't tell any difference between how you celebrate that holiday or that party or how anyone else celebrates the holiday or party. We just look like everybody. Or we could just make sure our celebrations have the spotlight on Christ or exhibit the character of Christ in how we celebrate. So like a, ho a holiday like Halloween with no straightforward path to point to Jesus. If you choose to participate... We do so with the goal and aim of getting people to Jesus and his gospel. Which doesn't mean we have parties that celebrate and glorify sin. But it also doesn't mean we have to Jesus juke every kid who rings our doorbell. Like there's somewhere in between that. And so we, we ask good questions in community. Like, okay, missional community, how do we want to celebrate Halloween this year that gives opportunity to glorify Christ and build relationships to get to the gospel with more people in our context. Regular celebrations for the purpose of remembering are a normal rhythm of God's people. So because of who we are, because of whose we are, it's actually a normal thing for us to get together, celebrate, and remember the realities of God and His people. Like in communion. What is, what is the purpose of communion? It is a weekly reminder. Do this in remembrance of me. A weekly reminder of who Christ is and what Christ has done. It's a weekly celebration meal. 
of who Christ is and what Christ has done. We need these regular reminders. Why? Because we are prone to forget. We so easily forget. It's not hard at all. In fact, this was a common theme in Scripture. Do certain things to help each other remember. When God parted the Jordan River, they crossed the Jordan on dry ground because God parted just like He did the Red Sea. He, he told them to grab 12 stones from the bottom of the Jordan to make a stone structure so that in generations to come, your kids would ask, why are those 12 stones stacked up like that? And you could tell them, we got those from the bottom of the Jordan River. Uh, how'd you do that? That's not easy. Well, this is how we were able to do that. Because God delivered us from slavery into the land that He promised us. And it was all done by His miraculous hand. So none of us have been able to take credit for this. God is that gracious and that good. Psalm 77, 10-12. So I say, I am grieved that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I will remember the Lord's works. Yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect on all you have done and meditate on your actions. Now, we don't know the context of Psalm 77, but the psalmist is in crisis because he feels like God has forgotten them. Look what he says. I am grieved that the right hand of the Most High has changed. God's no longer treating us now as He always has before. God's changed. And the Spirit inspired Him to begin to remember His grace and compassion in times past. To actually realize it feels like He's changed, but He hasn't. As He has been loving and kind and gracious in the past, so He is now and will be in the future even when it doesn't feel like it. And the psalmist is drawn in that passage back to the delivery of the Israelites through the Red Sea as a reminder. God delivering His people. The psalmist is probably in a crisis because he's being attacked. Will He deliver me? Or will He abandon me and forsake me? And he's drawn back to God's deliverance of His people in times past. Remember who He is. And regular celebrations are times to remember because we so easily forget. There's an argument to be made that we don't actually celebrate enough. You really think about who we are and who God is and what He's done for us in Christ Jesus, there's a good argument made that we don't have enough parties. We, we should be the most joyous, the most celebratory, the, 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 the partyingest people that exist. Because while it seems as though the world is just burning down all around us, we know where this is headed. And we know that even in the midst of pain and heartache and brokenness, there is hope that brings joy that we share together. Every day we wake up is a reason to celebrate. Every meal we share with other people is a reason to celebrate. Everything we can do as a church together is a reason to celebrate. And the year is filled with different events the church has celebrated throughout the years. January 6th, the day of Epiphany, Pentecost, Lent, just to name a few. Whatever we choose to celebrate, it's all about Jesus, to enjoy Him, and to put the spotlight on Him, and to make Him known. We're not just adopting the world system of commercialism and indulgence and materialism and individualism. We're partying together like Jesus partied as the center of the party. This is the mission we've been given, and how we celebrate and throw parties in our context will flow out of how we view the relationship between us and God and between us and our culture. So we navigate these issues. When we navigate these issues, we have to see this as an issue of freedom and conscience for the Christian, 
There are no rigid black and white commands to clearly apply in all circumstances. We have to make sure that we're celebrating uh, Jesus in all things, so we're not worshiping indulgence, food, comfort, and not pagan deities. The third thought to consider to help us navigate this issue is we have to recognize the gospel has to be contextualized to every culture it reaches. The gospel has to be contextualized to every culture it reaches. We take the unchanging gospel message of who Christ is, what Christ has done, and we make it as understandable and relevant as we can without changing the message to get the gospel to as many people as possible. Like sometimes it's as simple as translating the Bible into the heart language of the people you're trying to reach. That's, that's easy contextualization. Sometimes it's much more complicated because we want to build relational bridges to the people we're trying to reach to give them an opportunity to hear the gospel. So, so like in Monroe, compared to Portland, in Portland it's a weird thing for a church to be volunteering at a local school. In fact, while we were up there, the pastor we were with told a story about a, a guidance counselor at the school that they volunteer at who was recently outed as a Christian. Parents raised a ruckus and had him fired. That would never happen here. And so it's a weird thing for a church to partner with a local school and help out and serve. Here, it's a weird thing if there isn't a church partner with a local school. So that makes an entirely huge difference in how we contextualize the gospel to our context and our culture. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, we looked at this last week, it's relevant again. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win Jews, to those under the law like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law to win those under the law. To those who are without the law like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ to win those without the law. To the weak I became the weak, uh, weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every means possible save some. Now I do all of this because of the gospel, so I may share in the blessing. Now there's been long-standing debate among Christians about what the relationship between the church and the culture should look like. Some Christians, churches, want to withdraw from culture and hide, kind of create compounds. Now we're here, you stay out there. So the extreme of that would be like the Mennonites and the Amish. Some want to attack culture to impose our will on it, to make culture bend to our desires, to shape culture like we want to shape it. Some want to simply embrace culture, and whatever is good and enjoyable in culture is good for us to embrace, even if it contradicts Orthodox Christianity. So there's really no distinction between the church and culture. But does hiding from culture, attacking culture, or embracing culture really help us accomplish our mission to go into all cultures and nations and win people to Christ, see people become disciples of Christ. Like There has to be a better way. And that would be Christians who are in culture and for culture. We are in culture as much as we are trying to shape it. Culture is also, we recognize at the same time, shaping us. We can't help that. But we are for culture in that we want to create a culture that is a preview of God's kingdom. Recognizing what in culture is structurally good and build on it, but recognizing what is directionally not good and try to redirect it. Dr. Bruce Ashford came up with this perspective. He has some helpful questions for us to consider when we're examining culture and determining how to interact in a way that brings some measure of transformation. Uh, three questions. Number one, what is God's creational design for this realm of activity? 
Number two, what is the sin or idolatry operative in this realm of culture? And then number three, how can I interact and react and, and act redemptively? In other words, how can I redirect what has been misdirected to bring healing in this realm of culture? There's a longer conversation for another day about how we apply all of that. But, but overall, the, the basics for today is we be Christians who aren't against it. We're not just embracing culture. We're not hiding from it, but we're in it and for it. We just want to make it more like Jesus, make it more like the kingdom of God, as Jesus describes throughout the Gospels. Human beings in all cultures, for instance, have taken opportunities when seasons change to have celebrations. Many have done this in an attempt to appease false pagan gods. We come in, redirect that false worship to worship God in and through celebrations and parties that are already taking place to build relational bridges to get to the gospel to see disciples of Jesus made. It's just one example of how and why we do that. Jesus showed us how to do this in his own life. Jesus was such a friend of sinners, he was accused of being a sinner by the religious leaders of his day, even though at the end of his life, he was accused of no sin. Only sin being of blasphemy, he claimed to be the Son of God, which he was. So Jesus is hanging around sinners so much, the religious leaders say, this man's a sinner like one of them. He's a glutton and a drunkard like one of them. Yet we know in the midst of those parties, he never sinned. But he was in their life to such a degree, he was identified with them. How do we have lives so enmeshed in our culture that we risk getting labeled the same by some of the religious people of our day? Yet we know we're not doing it to indulge sin, but to love sinners who need Jesus. In our own strength, we would fail every single time. Sin would destroy us. But with Jesus in us, we do this in community for encouragement and accountability. The Spirit of God sends and empowers us, and we get the gospel to places in our city that the gospel uh, hasn't been or hasn't, is not often, and to people who may never show up in a building or a place like this. And we also reach people who would show up in a place like this as we redirect their religiousness to a genuine relationship with Jesus and his people. As the worship team comes back up, I'm going to close in prayer. You may or may not notice, I don't know if you've noticed, we're trying to be more intentional in our worship times, our worship gatherings, so that times of prayer would actually be times of prayer. It's not, okay, everybody eyes closed, I can, I can leave, I can move around, I can transition. As much as possible, we would like, when we gather to pray, to just stop. Gather to pray. Everything that you think you need to go do can wait. And so um, I want to stop and take time to actually pray and listen to the Spirit of God speak to our hearts. So right now, just take a few seconds, 30 seconds or so, and just listen. How has the Spirit of God spoken to you this morning? What is the Spirit saying that He wants you to hear, apply, and obey?
Spirit of God, we ask that as you have spoken to our hearts today, that it wouldn't just be a temporary um, moment of euphoria or conviction, but it would actually be life-transforming. Because of Jesus, we have access to the King of the universe, and we want to be changed by that. Through conviction that leads to repentance, that leads to healing and restoration, through brokenness that leads to encouragement, that leads to life and hope and joy, that we want to be a responsive people to your spirit, to your word. And so, help us. Help us respond in faith for the glory of Christ working in his people and through his people we pray. Amen.